if you want to kind of live together without getting married, you know, we wouldn't be necessarily opposed. And he's a Christian. He says, there's no way I could do that. I can see wisdom whereby the man respectfully looks at his parents' counsel and says, I can't do this. All the way from Bukota Village in Limpopo, South Africa, we bring you Missionary Mind, where you can learn about family, church history, biblical worldview issues, and of course, missions, all from the mind of a real-world missionary of almost 20 years. Buddy Paul, we've been discussing bride price in recent episodes, and that had a lot to do with the parental element involved in a potential marriage uh, with a couple. And what we want to find out today in light of that parental element is what should a Christian couple do if their parents disapprove their marriage? Over to you, Mfundisi. This is a great question. And I think the first response we need to be to that particular situation is this question. Is this union honoring to God, which is not exactly the same question as, is this union honoring to my parents? Now, oftentimes those go together. Union honoring to God is often honoring to parents, but not necessarily. It could be that it's honoring to God and the parents don't approve, or it could be not honoring to God and the parents approve. So if I'm sitting across from a couple, let's say as a pastor, and I'm trying to vet them, and I'm trying to discover, determine if, in fact, this is something that's honoring to God, if, in fact, they should get married, there's basically five criteria that I'm looking for. So let me just kind of unpack some of those. Here's the first one. Conversion. Is the man and the woman saved? Scripture is clear. 2 Corinthians 6.14, you shouldn't be unequally yoked. Scripture is opposed to interfaith marriages. Not interracial marriages, but interfaith. So that is, if one is a Christian and one is not, Scripture forbids them from being married. In fact, they shouldn't even date. They shouldn't even start the recipe. They shouldn't start to cook it and then say, oh, we can't put it in the oven. I think of 1 Corinthians 7.39, which talks about uh, being in the Lord. So that is, a, a widow, when her husband dies, she may remarry, but provided that he's in the Lord, he's a Christian. And marrying unbelievers is only going to lead to heartache. We see that all the time in the Old Testament, where the people of Israel were told not to go after people from other religions and other gods. So number one would be conversion. Let me ask you, Carney, would you say that this is an automatic, understood, in most evangelical churches today, already on point number one, most people, most Christians are going to put a thumbs up and say, oh, this is obvious. Christians marry Christians, full stop. I don't think so, brother. I think there are different levels to it. On the first instance, I think wider evangelicalism, so many people don't understand this fact. The logic doesn't follow that, okay, that person is an unbeliever, therefore I shouldn't marry them, therefore I shouldn't date them. Uh, but even going further than that, some people will start to tread the line and think, what if I just keep a close relationship and try and evangelize the person? And that's something that's common even in our circle. So what would you even say to that? Someone who says, I like this person, they like me, 
I'm not going to date them, but I'm going to try evangelize them and keep a close relationship to keep that avenue open. So I would say, why are you even interested in someone who's spiritually dead? Remember, conversion is not just a prayer you pray. It's an entire worldview, Christianity. So, oh, outside of that person being spiritually dead, we have a lot in common. If that's your answer, I have concerns here. Because we're going to talk about later, that's not the only criteria. That is, if they're not spiritually vibrant. If you're spiritually vibrant and the other person isn't, I wouldn't allow that either. So that is concerning to me, of someone who's interested in someone who's spiritually dead. By the way, when I say conversion, remember, this is not someone who's simply affirms being a Christian. This isn't someone who simply says, I'm a Christian. Lots of people say that around the world. I want to know if this person is genuinely converted. So if I'm a pastor sitting down with a couple, the first thing I'm going to say is, tell me your testimonies. I'm not going to say, are you a Christian? They're both going to say yes, but I really want to hear their testimonies. If they can't give a clear testimony already on point number one, we have concerns. But let's move on from that one. Second would be consent. Are they actually both in agreement? And you might think this is obvious. I'm speaking about consent, not from the parents on this particular point, but from the perspective bride and groom. Do they actually want this? And I've seen situations, I can think of a number in my mind right now, where one of them was saying, you could tell they were not interested in this. They weren't after this. They, they, they didn't want to go in this particular direction. You could tell they were, they were being forced. So either by the parents or by the groom or the bride or whoever it may be. So that's a mark that I'm looking for. Is there conversion? Is there consent? Is there character? If there's too much of a difference between them spiritually, let's say they're both Christians, but one is spiritually vibrant and the other one is not, I'm going to have major concerns if this is actually a marriage that God would bless. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? So as they're walking together, I understand that they're not always going to be exactly equal. I'm going to have more concerns, though, if she is far more spiritually mature than him. I'm probably going to put the kibosh on that pretty early on, because it's the man's responsibility to lead the woman. So if he's the caboose and she's the train engine spiritually, that's going to have problems. Fourth would be camaraderie. Do they just enjoy each other? Do they love each other? Do they love being around each other? Do they have a good friendship? Do they have a companionship? Do they have similar interests? I know that the Puritans, this is politically incorrect, but they used to say that not only besides some of the points I've just mentioned, but even coming from the same class. And again, that's very politically incorrect. And I think you could take that too far. But I think their point was cohesion. How are they going to interact? If, if one is from, let's say, a very upper class setting, one is from a very lower class, or uh, one is from a particular side of the world and the other is from the other side, that's going to add added difficulties to the, uh, to the marriage. So that's not necessarily a deal breaker as far as socially, but they should consider it. And that, that affects camaraderie, that affects companionship. And then fifth would be counsel. And this is really what we want to unpack today. And that is, what do other people say? Proverbs is loaded with wisdom toward the person who's making a decision, and they need to seek the counsel of others. Proverbs 12, 15, a wise man listens to advice. So what does the pastor say? What do your parents say? What do your closest friends say? 
If there is no guidance, a people falls. And so we need wisdom, we need counsel. And this final mark brings us to the question of, what about that fifth point? On the fifth point of counsel, let's say you're kind of cruising along one through four, and then on number five, you find out, actually, we don't have unanimity when it comes to counsel, or maybe our parents disapprove, but our other counselors do approve. What should we do in that particular situation? And we're going to just try to look at some principles of that today. Thanks for laying the foundation for us, brother. You've mentioned five C's, conversion, consent, character, camaraderie, counsel. So easy to remember there for our listeners. I'm just thinking of what you mentioned with character and the different levels of vibrancy. The home is going to be a peculiar place if the wife loves theology, loves going to Bible studies, loves reading missiology, and the husband loves video games, loves hanging out in his room by himself, and loves comics. That's going to be different levels of vibrancy which could cause issues. And then on uh, similarities, I remember we were taking a walk the other day as you were discipling me, and I shared with you that because of the economic situation in Zimbabwe, I was raised, especially in the, the, the latter years of my upbringing, not really going to uh, on vacation or holiday and the like. And my wife was raised with those things, taking breaks and doing all of those. And it's interesting. We're, we're very similar and very alike. But even on something like that, you can see that, wow, potential issues can come from different places, just differences that exists between two people. And on that point, I would say that's why I think the number one character trait to look for in a spouse is teachability. So let's just take that particular scenario you gave. And let's say that caused some problems in a marriage. One person expects A, they grew up with A, the other person maybe expects B. But if both of them are teachable, which by the way is just another way of saying humble, if both of them are teachable and they can stand back and determine actually A is superior to B or vice versa, we're going to search the scriptures and we're going to determine actually, you know what, getting time away to spend with family, let's say, that I didn't experience, I can see how that's superior. I'm going to be teachable and I'm going to go after that. Like the Lord's going to bless that. So I'm looking for that, even in you. When you were dating me, so I'm looking at is Carney teachable? What trajectory is he in? I'd rather have a guy who was a three out of 10 spiritually, but he was extremely teachable because I know he's going to get to an eight if he gets to the right teaching place, than a guy who's a five out of 10 spiritually, but he's not teachable at all. He might actually be beyond the other guy, but 20 years from now, he's still going to be a five out of 10. That's going to be a key point to me. I want to know is he on the right path? Just teach me, I'm a sponge. Hmm, teachability. Okay, as we move on with our topic, you've mentioned these points. How does someone then move forward when facing this issue with their parents? Okay, so first one is non-negotiable. You need to honor your parents. Now, what honoring looks like, we're going to talk about, but that's a fifth commandment. We're always to honor our parents. Commandment number five, children, obey your parents. 
in the Lord, honor your father and your mother. Interesting, the Westminster Larger Catechism asks specifically in question 127 what it means to honor parents. And it says this, it means all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer, and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces. So suppose you have a man in his 20s and his parents aren't believers and they say, look, we don't want you marrying that Christian girl over there. Let's say the son has been converted. He wants to marry this Christian girl. What is he supposed to do? I would say, according to the fifth commandment and according to the way the Westminster Larger Catechisms unpacks it, I would say actually he, he could theoretically still honor his parents and yet disobey their counsel not to marry the Christian girl. So for example, he could come to them and show them honor. He could praise his parents. He could genuinely seek their counsel. I genuinely want to know what you think about Sally, for example. He could praise his fiance and seek their approval. Uh, He could genuinely seek their advice and say, I want to know what you think. I think that's what Leviticus 19.3 is saying when children need to revere their parents. One of the greatest ways that a child, regardless of age, can honor their parents is by seeking their help and approval in a marriage. We find this all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham found a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac found a wife for his son Jacob. And it's not just with fathers. You see Naomi having a role in finding a husband for uh, Ruth. You see Hagar finding a wife for her son Ishmael. That was uh, a way that the children, even if they were in their 20s or 30s, could show honor to their parents, at least in the beginning, say, I, I, I care what you think. Ah, oh, but you don't know my father. He had no role in my life. I would still ask him. I would still honor him. I would still let him know, hey, I'm, I'm going in this direction, all the while knowing that you're not necessarily going to follow all the dictates that he lays out for you. But I just want you to know, I love you. I care about you. I seek your counsel. I know you understand me in a special way. I think that would be number one, baseline, honor your parents, non-negotiable. That's a good point, especially for Christians who have unbelieving parents and they're more mature than their parents in spiritual matters, and they can be tempted to think that that means their parents have nothing to give. But honoring your father and mother can really have a lot of bearing in how to progress with an issue like this. A little rabbit trail, um, someone who's in my position where my father has passed away, what would you say would be ways I could honor his memory and be respectful Um, of him, even in his passing. Well, we're going to touch a little bit about this. If I understand your question correctly, that is, if your father's not still there, how can you get further counsel away from your father, you mean? Or are you saying, how could you honor him in your wedding, for example? Yeah, it could be wedding life. Uh, It was just a little sidetrack, how I go about my life. Is there um, any need to uh, speak of him at all, speak highly of him, speak memories of him? Or It's interesting you ask that because I've seen a number of videos recently, and I think all of them were of athletes 
whose fathers had recently passed away. And I was reminded by the things they said, wow, fathers matter. Uh, one was, I think, John McEnroe, who was a great tennis player. And then the other one was uh, Kelly Slater, who is uh, probably the greatest surfer of all time. And both of them, when they spoke about their fathers who had passed away in tears, honored them. And it was interesting. I think they didn't necessarily have the greatest relationship with them. I think there were some broken homes, at least in one of those cases. And yet they spoke about their fathers in an honoring way. They didn't bring out the bad parts about their fathers. I think that's a way to do that. You're, you're at a wedding and you can say, um, I, I, my father's not here today. Uh, the, the Lord took him uh, some years ago, but there are a number of things that I learned from him, and I would like to state those publicly. And I think we can get an example of that from Hebrews 11, lest someone accuse you of rubbing out all the bad parts or somehow being dishonest. Hebrews 11 does that. When they show the faithfulness of these men, it doesn't bring out their wickedness, at least in Hebrews 11, because it's trying to show their faith. And in the same way, I don't need to expose all the weaknesses of my father, perhaps if he left my mother or whatever. I can, at least for this moment, honor him by the great things he taught me. Very helpful, brother. And I'll never be ashamed about promoting family worship to our audience. That's something we're discussing today in family worship when we're going through Hebrews 11 when I was with your family. Okay, so honoring parents would be the first one. What would be the second principle? Okay, so this would be the flip side. And that would be sometimes disobey your parents. So number one would be always honor them. But sometimes, even in the midst of honoring them, there is a time to disobey them. The Westminster Shorter Catechism doesn't say that the fifth commandment necessarily equals obedience. It's not like the fifth commandment is obey full stop. Obedience to parents doesn't necessarily mean blind disobedience. Yes, Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. But the Catechism says that this couple, quote, should give willing obedience to their, that is the parents, lawful commands and counsel. So that means that it's qualified when we listen to our parents, especially in our older years. Are they giving lawful counsel? So if we feel, they're my parents, I have to obey, not necessarily. Obedience is always qualified, and that is, first, what does Scripture say? We must obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. And Jesus even spoke about this often in the realm of salvation. He told us at the very beginning, just so you know, when it comes to following Christ, oftentimes that means the son is going to be set against his father, or the daughter-in-law is going to be set against the mother-in-law. So in a sense, he was already explaining that there's going to be some disobedience to hierarchy, perhaps, in the future when it comes to following Christ. And that could very well be the case with parents. If the parents are unbelievers, could very well be the case that they need to disobey. Now, those commands from Jesus are not giving us permission that when we bring our boyfriend home and he's got all kinds of 
rebellious traits and the parents say no, we say, oh, actually, Jesus came to say, no, no, no. But when their counsel is opposed to Scripture, I think Scripture absolutely gives us warrant to disagree. I even think of the times when we need to honor an older man, and yet there are times, 1 Timothy 5.1, when we need to rebuke the older man, of course, all the while doing it with uh, uh, kindness and, and respect. So yes, honor an older man, but there are exceptions. There are times when he's incorrect and we need to rebuke him. I think it can be the same case for parents. Very helpful. And I heard this statement once. I want you to give your thoughts on it. Someone said that the relationship between parents and children, as the the children get older, moves from obedience to influence such that when your youngest son, Luke, is his age, everything has to be obedience, obedience, obedience. But then when Luke is 30 years old, then there should be more influence that you're exercising over him than requiring obedience. And he shouldn't be um, expecting to have you give commands that he should obey, but get influenced. And I think about that because uh, in the African context and in many traditional contexts, there's a very strong emphasis on obeying everything parents say. What would your thoughts on the statement I think you're exactly that? right. Mm-hmm. As the children get older, as they start to Genesis 2.24, a man leaves his father and his mother. I think the fifth commandment shifts from objective, hard obedience. I just think of my own kids. It's like, obey. You have no option. It, it shifts then to more of a reverence to parents, more of an honor, more of an attitude, rather than I'm obeying their strict commands. Hmm. What would the next principle be? Okay, a final one would be make sure that you consider the counsel of others. Now, interesting, we would even say underneath the fifth commandment, it's not only listening to the counsel of our parents, but our superiors. Question 124 of the larger catechism asks, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? Answer, not only parents, but all superiors in age and gifts. So yes, of course, parents know their children in a very special way. They know their pros and they know their weaknesses and their minuses. But Obeying the fifth commandment also means listening to the godly counsel around you. So that means bringing in godly friends. Hey, what about your fishing buddy that you go with every Saturday and he's got gray hair? I think part of the fifth commandment is listening to what he has to say. Proverbs 27, 9, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So let's just take an example here. Let's say you have a couple... They're in their mid-20s, they're madly in love, and they want to get married within a year. And let's say the parents of the man are nominal Christians, they go to church, but they're not spiritually mature, and they tell the parents about the plans, and the parents say, no, we don't want you doing this. Actually, we want you to put this off for, let's say, three years. You're still in graduate school. Uh, We want you to finish this. We want you to put a down payment down on a house. Uh, We also know that if you get married now, we we know you as your parents. We know some of your weaknesses. We don't want you to do this. What should he do? Well, this this can be a 
a hard situation. On the one side, I can see their advice being good because they know the son and they know that it's hard for him maybe to finish something and so he's already started and this is just going to be one more reason for him not to finish it. There could be some really good counsel. But I can also see some bad counsel here. Let's say the guy says, there's no way I'm making this three years and coming out of this pure. And let's say the parents even imply, hey, you know what? If you want to kind of live together, live in the same apartment together, but without getting married, you know, we wouldn't be necessarily post. And he's a Christian. He says, there's no way I could do that. I can see that after getting this advice, I can see wisdom whereby the man respectfully looks at his parents' counsel and says, I can't, I can't do this. I actually need to go against my parents' counsel for these seven reasons, and I'm going to get married within a year. And I, I would actually say he would be obeying the fifth commandment by listening to other godly superiors. So if he is with his fishing buddies and she's with the ladies at the church and she, they're saying, we love our parents, but we want to be pure and we can't do this if we wait another three years. We know ourselves, we're burning inside. I think that in some ways it would actually be more biblical to follow the counsel of the church, especially the elders of the church. Let's not forget Hebrews 13, 17. The guy and the girl, they're both members of a Bible-believing church. Hebrews 13, 17 says that we're bound to obey our elders. And if you come to the elders and they say, married within a year, I think scripture is all for that kind of thing. And we shouldn't be fearful that somehow we've broken the fifth commandment. This, considering the counsel of others principle, is a very critical one, um, as you've just shown us. I think of how, in a sense, we all do this, and I, I see it in my wife that she's such a uh, a wonderful woman. And I remember attending a wedding uh, with her, and she's Zulu. And so when they started singing the Zulu songs, I felt like it was another side to her I had never seen before. It's like, oh, there's this uh, African woman side to her that I hadn't seen before. And the same thing you're saying with asking your fishing buddies for counsel. Maybe there's something that they see that your pastor doesn't necessarily see. Maybe you get impatient and you kick over things when you lose a fish or something. And getting diversified uh, forms of counsel can help you actually make a wise decision. I can just see the ages of especially men getting older and older, or, or maybe the, the father was 30 when he got married, or whatever the reason is. And, and the basis for their counsel to their child is just not biblical. I think they can respectfully, kindly, lovingly say, Mom and Dad, I love you. We can't do this for these reasons. And they should feel confident in that. Mm, mm. Any closing remarks, brother? Yeah, let me just maybe close with maybe a practical side. Let's say someone's listening right now. It's a couple. Let's say it's um, Temba and Tensalo, and they are madly in love and they do want to get married and they, and they are Christians and they're first generation Christians and they want to honor their parents, but the parents are not necessarily in agreement. I would start today praying this specific thing that God would frustrate 
all of the bad advice that comes their way. So as they seek advice from their pastor and from godly people in their church and from parents and friends, whoever that may be, Lord, would you frustrate Psalm 33:10? The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. And we can't all, always see what is good and bad counsel. I can think of times where I received counsel. I thought it was great. And looking back, I see it was bad counsel. And we can't always see that clearly. Pray something like, Lord, help us. We're just kids. We're youth. We don't know as much as we will, obviously, 20 years from now. So help us not to be prideful. Help us to follow the best advice. And when we can't always see what the best advice is, we pray that you would cast down the poor advice to us, make it clear what the good advice is to us, and that we would move forward with the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a treat, Mfundisi. To our audience, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate it and subscribe to keep posted with more upcoming content. Feel free to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting and submit any questions you may want answered in a future podcast. You can email those questions to paulschleyline at gmail.com. You can also visit betweentwocultures.com for other resources like this. I'm your host, Yamikani Katunga, and until next time, that's it from Missionary Minds.